Okay. Um, sometimes it's hard to transition, but uh, we're reminded even in First Peter uh, that God is in control. Uh, my primary book that I'll be using is this Two Horizons Commentary uh, by Joel Green. This is the guy I did my dissertation work under, so uh, don't talk bad about it. Because uh, uh, So it's been fun to read what he wrote on First Peter, because that's not what I studied with him. Uh, so I'll open up. We don't know a lot about the background of First Peter. Tra- by tradition, this is, this is Peter we know from the Gospels, the one who often stuck his foot in his mouth uh, and also did great things. Um, Joel Green here says, uh, In First Peter, we have an invitation to adopt God's way of seeing things and to live accordingly. It's, it's maybe the, the way we start out. Here's an invitation to adopt God's way of seeing things and to live accordingly. And so where he brings us, um, he asks, are we ready to read 1 Peter as a letter addressed to us? That is, are we ready to allow our dispositions and behaviors to be so transformed that we experience, on account of our faith, conflicted presence in the world, and to embrace as our own the vision of God Peter develops in this letter? Are we ready to read 1 Peter as our own book? Uh, So in this introduction, what he's trying to suggest is, or trying to get us away from, is an an arm's distance reading of Peter. It's just a letter addressed to those people 2,000 years ago, or uh, this is just kind of an intellectual exercise. We learned some trivia about 1 Peter, but rather, are we willing to hear this book, uh, hear this letter, uh, in such a way that it changes the way we see the world uh, and live accordingly? And in 1 Peter... The issue going on, one of the main issues, is that as they've adopted and embraced this vision of God and how to live in the world, it's made them um, uh, strangers, is the language, exiles in their own land, um, because they have embraced the way of Christ. And are we willing to do the same? Um, And I think many of us would say yes, but there's always, as we'll see in Peter, room to grow into this. So let's get started now. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, and then he goes on from there. Uh, so verse 1, a couple things. Uh, I love these opening verses when we, when we slow down and look at them. You've got this interesting juxtaposition. God's elect, so here's God's chosen, and the word right beside it is strangers or exiles. Simultaneously chosen by God and rejected uh, strangers in their own culture. So uh, we've got God's view of them and their culture's view of them. Uh, the language of exiles or strangers might call to mind Abraham being a stranger in his own land or Israel being a stranger or exiled in Egypt. Uh, and so <clears throat> the, the idea here is that uh, their lifestyle has made them uh, weird in their own culture. They're not actually dispersed. The language that we get in um, uh, the second part of that verse, throughout the provinces of Pontus, if that's what your says, it's the Greek is the diaspora, the dispersion. Um, so they have not been literally exiled, but uh, their lifestyle is making them exiled. So here's how one person from the second century, uh, let's see, the epistle to Diognetus. Here's how um, this idea of being exiles and strangers. For Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. 
Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own, use a strange dialect, or live life out of the ordinary. So they're everywhere. They eat the same food, speak the same language. They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens, but they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign territory is a homeland for them, and every homeland foreign territory. They marry like everyone else and have children, but here's something that distinguishes them. They don't expose them once they are born. Exposing kids is like um, uh, a way of just letting them die if they weren't the right gender or there was something wrong with them. Christians, they don't do that, unlike their culture. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They are found in the flesh, but they don't live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but participate in the life of heaven. And that's a great, that's a great way of putting what Peter is going to do. They live on earth, but participate life in heaven. Not in an escapist kind of mentality, uh, but the rule of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, how God is going to rule, that becomes their norm. How are you going to live? Well, if what we're anticipating is this restoration where we love God and love neighbor fully, that's what we're going to live according to. Now, they are obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives, they supersede the laws. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are not understood, and they are condemned. They are put to death and made alive. They are impoverished, yet make many rich. They lack all things and abound in everything. They are dishonored and they are exalted in their dishonors. What makes them aliens and exiles is not where they are, but how they live where they are. And so Green will say, part of our struggle sometimes to hear this as a letter addressed to us is a theological struggle. Are we willing to step into this in such a way that might leave us as foreigners in our own lands? Verse 2, so these elect, they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Um, language here of being chosen or elect, uh, we'll get this again later. Um, it doesn't seem to be, the focus doesn't seem to be on something like uh, predestination to eternal salvation, that kind of Calvinistic idea. Um, but rather, since Israel language is in here, it's as God chose Israel, so now he is choosing the church. And so this isn't getting into predestination to eternal salvation. God chose Israel, but doesn't mean that everyone in Israel is somehow good with God. But God is choosing to work, or God chose to work through this people. Now he is choosing to work uh, through the new Israel, the church. But this is a staple verse for Calvin. Yeah, and I think so they get it wrong. Uh, I think, well, like I just did maybe. Yeah. Well, the same way we talk about the election of Israel. God clearly chose Israel, but he didn't think that everything Israel does as well. And he can choose this people and reject some within it as well. So, And he can even choose those outside of it. So you've got, like in the genealogy of Matthew, you've got the Rahabs and the Ruths uh, who don't seem to belong, and yet they are grafted in, maybe. So I think that's a better way, choosing a, a people, not choosing individuals for eternal salvation. That's my, that's my take on it. And I'm right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Hilton's mentoring me, so uh, he's grooming me to be an elder. In it. Yeah. 
grace and peace be yours in abundance. Uh, this is more than a greeting. Uh, the typical way of saying greeting would be karain. This is karis, grace. This is a Christian greeting. Don't forget this grace of Christ and peace. This is shalom, or this seems to be the Greek way of saying that Jewish shalom. So what Israel is expecting, what Jesus has done, this is the blessing that we give. This is how we live in our world, having received grace and peace. I mean, we get this, then we move forward. We don't move forward hoping that if we're good enough, we'll get grace and peace. But having received grace and peace, then we move forward. Okay, now verses 3 through 12. Interesting thing here is this is one sentence. One long sentence. Um, so you can kind of see how uh, we've in English divided it up to make it more readable. But uh, this is like an opening prayer and blessing. <coughs> Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we got some good theology here. God here, back in verse 2, again in verse 17, the primary description of God or title is Father. This is how we as Christians, this is our new household. Uh, he is Father. This, this matters, I think, more in ways that we might not pick up in 1 Peter. If the household presents some ways of, of giving you status and what normal rules are, and here they are, they're exiles, they don't belong, and they're reminded, yeah, you do belong, and not just in Caesar's house or something like that. This is God's house. He is your father. <laughs> this is what's setting the new norm for you. God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so, um, Jesus is Lord. He is Christ. Uh, he is Messiah. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what opens this sentence up, what opens what follows, if you look in verse 13, you have this therefore moving forward. It's the mercy of the Father. This is where our roots are. This is foundational. We start with God as Father who has shown mercy. And He is the one who has given us new birth into a living hope. And as although in uh, Protestant circles we tend to focus on the death of Christ, notice Peter, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead uh, that gets attention here. This is uh, death and sin are defeated, and that is shown in resurrection. Uh, this new birth language is going to get picked up later. Um, Peter is going to talk about birth and, and um, seed, all this stuff that, that represents this beginnings. Uh, Peter seems to adopt this view of Christianity as this ongoing thing. It's not a static one-time event. You kind of get right with God, and, and that's it. But it's, you begin this growth into Christ-likeness. Uh, verse 4, um, in his great mercy he has given us new birth and into, now verse 4, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So as, as the church is seen, as we saw like in verse 1 and 2, as this kind of new Israel, so the church is going to have this inheritance. Abraham and Israel were going to have an inheritance. Now the new Israel has this inheritance, but it's an inheritance that's never going to perish, spoil, or, or fade. Uh, and so Joel Green says this is something like backshadowing. We know foreshadowing, uh, where you kind of get a sense of what's going to happen early on. Backshadowing is, is knowing the end and living accordingly. We all who call ourselves Christians, who confess Christ, live in this backshadowing or can live in this backshadowing kind of mentality. We know the end, and so knowing the end, we arrange our lives accordingly. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. 
throughout this chapter, you'll get this notion of a uh, contrast between what perishes, um, what withers, what fades, and that which is eternal. Because I think he's trying to draw them out of, as exiles, I mean, you can imagine, they just want to be left alone. They just want some peace, whatever it might be. And it's like he's saying, stay in there. What you're doing has eternal ramifications. This stuff matters. And the difficult thing you're going through, it's going to pass. It's going to fade uh, in light of eternity. Verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So we have, first of all, if you're not picking up on this, there's a ton in here that I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Um, but you're getting a sense here of a now and not yet that we see throughout the New Testament. You're already experienced some of this, but there is more salvation to come. And it will be revealed in the last time. So in one sense, they're living in the last times. and another, they are awaiting the final time. Verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. Uh, most likely the trials and griefs they are facing um, are coming from things like not honoring the emperor as lord, um, not... Um, I have something here that I can't read in my own writing. <laughs> um, as, they, as they are adopting the the value system of Christianity, it's putting them at odds with the value system of their world. So if you think um, of something like Philemon, I like Philemon as an easy example. If Philemon, uh, if you don't know the book of Philemon, Paul says, I know you got this runaway slave, he caused you maybe some trouble, maybe he got some money or stole some money. Um, I want you to welcome him back as a brother. Welcome him back as you would me. And that sounds like, oh, that's well and good, until you realize that in the first century, to treat a slave like a brother is going to, to make you look really weird in your society and make people ask questions like, yeah, you start doing this, what's going to happen to the slave system? And what are the other slaves going to think? And you don't mark slaves in Rome, by the way, because if all the slaves knew how many there were, they might revolt and we'd be in trouble. So these kind of moves uh, are not just like, oh, that's a little strange, but, but they, are making the, they make Christians look like deviants in their own culture. Um, so it's, it's that kind of stuff that's making them... Um, stand out. So this is some of the grief they're suffering. They're suffering social and economic grief probably mostly. Uh, people are rejecting them, maybe not uh, wanting to do business with them. Uh, you reject the gods, then you can expect the gods to respond. So as Christians are now denying the gods, do you want to do business with those people who are going to be in bad with the gods? Probably not. So these are some of the kind of trials that they might be experiencing. So there is, so notice again, this interesting juxtaposition. Verse 6, you rejoice, yet you suffer grief. So this isn't the, you put a smile on your face and act like bad things aren't happening. There is real grief, there is real suffering. But just as in the book of James, chapter 1, uh, you have a different perspective. Verse 7, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Why might you rejoice even in the midst of grief? Because you know that something better is being brought through this. Sounds a lot like James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. 
James says, look, if you understand trials, you realize they can make you into a new kind of person. And Peter says, look, trials, you can even rejoice in them because uh, they are testing and proving your faith. For both James and Peter, it seems as though they, they have this um, maybe core belief that isn't always as clear to us that, that growth matters, that who we're becoming really matters. Uh, they don't seem to hold on to a gospel of, hey, you get saved and that's the end of it. Yeah? No question, Josh. This idea of, of joy and suffering, I don't know the Greek words. It means, oh, goody, I get to suffer. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. Yeah, it's not equivalent to happiness. Peacefully or what? I don't know exactly. It's not equivalent to happiness. I think there's a certain peace and um, an attitude of, of hope. It's maybe peace and hope combined, something like that. Uh, so that, um, yeah, it's not an oh goody. I mean, you get that from the Psalms and from Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet even in that Psalm, there's this expectation at the end that God's going to bring restoration. And I think that's maybe what it is. You don't suffer like those without hope. You suffer, but even in the midst of suffering, you know that, that good can come from this um, because you know the end of the story. But how that gets worked out, um, honestly, I don't have enough experience with grief to be able to speak well on this. I'd be speaking from ignorance. So someone who has gone through this uh, might be able to speak more um, on that. Yeah, I wish I, well, I don't know if I wish I could speak to that, but um, John Mark Hicks. Do you know John Mark Hicks? Yes. Uh, so John Mark Hicks uh, has lost a wife, lost a son, um, and he, is, he has got, if you know John Mark, he has got a depth of joy to him that's, that's really, um, that's, it's just unique, but it's not a joy that doesn't know suffering and that hasn't grieved deeply. Uh, and so he would be one, I would read his books or his blogs about that to get a better sense, because um, he can talk with some authority on, on that. He's got a great blog, um, one of the smartest guys I know, um, and one of the, the most Christian men I know, <coughs> next to Hilton. Um, um, but, but for both James and Peter, uh, who we're becoming matters. This is a gap, I think, in some of our Protestant understanding, and some of mine too. Uh, we think you want to get saved so you can go to heaven, but, and you, we expect in heaven things are all going to be made right with us. We're not going to deal with sin and struggle. And yet Peter and James, and seems like throughout the New Testament, expect that we are supposed to be growing in this in-between time. So we might ask ourselves questions like, why does this growth matter if we're going to be made right at the end anyway? I don't know that I have the answer. I, I know I don't have the answer. But I know it matters for some reason that's not clear to me, uh, that uh, we need to be becoming a certain kind of people and not sit back uh, and kick up our feet and just be content for God to do all the work of sanctification. Um, but he does much of the work. We partner in it, though. Um, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. I mean, this is an early church, and, and don't you feel a little... A little camaraderie with them. We haven't seen Jesus, but somehow we love this person that we've not seen. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Such strange language here. Verse 9, present tense. You are receiving. Again, this now and not yet. You're beginning to experience what you are awaiting, even in the midst of your trial and grief. 
I mean, there is a there is a sense in which you read this and think, is he talking to Christians like I'm a Christian? Because some of this just doesn't doesn't sound like my experience. You're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Uh, the language souls there we should understand is lives. Um, it's more more robust than just this kind of I'm body and spirit, and it's only the spirit that gets saved. Um, this is all of you. So in chapter 320, Noah and his, um, his sons, uh, their souls were saved in the flood. It's their lives. It wasn't as though they got drowned and their souls were saved uh, separately. Um, so this is, this is more than just your spirit. Is that Suma? Uh, Suka, I think. Yeah. I couldn't find my Greek Bible when I was doing my notes, so I've only got the English in front of me today. And then I opened up a drawer and found it after I did all my notes in it. So I have it somewhere around here. Um, verse 10, all right, verse 10 through 12, I, this is still part of that same thing. I read a couple commentaries to try to figure out this, and most of them evaded some of the difficult stuff in here, so I will follow their lead. Uh, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Which prophets is he talking about? I'm not sure. Interestingly, it is the Spirit of Christ in them. I mean, so this is, he sees, Peter sees Jesus as, as later Christians will talk about in these kind of Trinitarian terms, this uh, always existent, even back before he took on flesh, um, witnessing through the prophets. So Peter's holding on to this idea that the prophets, as they were prophesying to their own people, also maybe recognized that there was a deeper truth at work. Um, and that they were digging into that. How does he know that? I don't know. I guess you have to, to believe in some sort of inspiration um, here. Um, which prophets is he talking about? In First Peter, he hones in on Isaiah and the Psalms. Uh, Psalms can, can fall under prophetic literature um, for New Testament authors. But it's, it's a really interesting claim he's making here. Um, and I wish he would have gone into more detail. Hey, Josh. Yeah. You know, a lot of academic types like critique the traditional Christian view of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Yeah. They say that's not talking about Christ. Yeah. That's talking about, you know, some other yeah. figure in Israel. I feel like Peter's laying it out and he's saying it's Christ. Yeah, I think I think the way like Matthew or someone else treats it is it's a both and. Yes, he was speaking in a way that they would get, yeah. but there was a deeper truth to that. Yeah, and I think he's saying they were, to some extent, aware. Not completely aware, because they were digging and searching, trying to figure out what it might mean. So you get someone, I think, like in Daniel 3, saying, asking, how's this going to happen, and when is this going to be? So, so there's, it's like they recognize there's layers to it. Uh, so it's not dismissing the earlier layer, but, but knowing there was more. Yeah, and Isaiah, I mean, he, he hones in on Isaiah so much, it's like he expects Isaiah knows. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, so some scholars, um, not the people who I like the most, they have trouble with that because they want to, they have trouble believing in God intervening. So if you take out God's intervention, 
then it's like, well, certainly they couldn't have known that beforehand. Um, a lot of New Testament scholars operate kind of atheistically. That might sound really strange to you. It certainly sounded strange to me when I first started this. Um, and so what, what you kind of discover is there are some who believe and they accept that God works, and there are others who don't and they want to kind of uh, poo-poo any idea of, of God working in those powerful ways. But also if you talk to a Jew and, and you just, you know, you open Isaiah 53 and you say, let's just read this together yeah. and see how this is Jesus. They don't see it at all. Right. They see it as Israel. Mm-hmm. It, that just it blows me away because it's so clear, uh, but they don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, if you believe in the resurrection, then then so much of the Old Testament you kind of filter through that and it makes more sense. But if you don't believe in the resurrection, you think, yeah, that doesn't actually fit here. I mean, part of what Isaiah is looking for is the restoration of Israel. Does Jesus actually bring the restoration of Israel? Well. You believe in the resurrection, you believe, see what he's doing, you think, yes, this is, you know, he chose 12, he's doing something new in what Israel's meant to do, but if you don't, you think, no, this didn't happen. Uh, so, so much hinges on the resurrection. Um, and if you buy into it, then, then uh, all trains pass through that station. Um, maybe the point being worked out here uh, in these verses, which isn't entirely clear, uh, I think Green grasped well. Um, God is faithful and will remember his po- promises. Their inheritance will never perish or corrode or fade. Their testing is nothing but a means of maturation and identification with Christ and so produces faithfulness. The prophecies were not mistaken but are assured by the Holy Spirit in the end New birth grounds the assurance that duress and trials do not keep the believer from God's power and glory. In fact, and here we're really getting to this section, the status that Peter's audience enjoys accords unsurpassed privilege to them. As God's children, they are beneficiaries of things the ancient prophets never understood and angels long to see. Their lot is neither despair in the face of suffering nor passive waiting for the end. As salvation is the goal of faith, so the present provides the arena for active faithfulness for those straining towards God's future. So, God was already at work, already doing this stuff. They are not simply exiles and deviants in their culture, but they are those who are specially chosen by God, and they have privileged access to things that the prophets didn't even completely understand, and that even the angels themselves long to look into. Um, So, you adopt, as Joel Green said, advises you adopt God's perspective on this and what's God's perspective on who you are as the church you are those who are in a privileged position even when you seem like misfits in your own culture so we practice that backshadowing knowing who God sees us knowing where we're going we seek to align our lives accordingly verse 13 therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So there's a holistic sense to uh, embracing this Christian conversion. Uh, Our minds need to be conformed. Our hopes need to be uh, set accordingly. I think if we're honest, we set our hopes on several things. Um, I know I do. Uh, And this is a, kind of like we learned in James, a single-mindedness. What is our hope? On the grace to be brought when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, This is expecting a completing work of what Jesus began. 
14. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. Notice the connection there between desire and ignorance. Uh, it's almost like an ignorance of the heart. It's not as though you get enough information up here, it's going to fix your desires. Uh, but part of what we're needing to do is work uh, in the heart uh, so that we don't desire that which we shouldn't desire. Uh, I read a, or at least I started to read a really good book by James K.A. Smith, a philosopher, I think at Calvin, somewhere. Um, and he was saying so much of what we're missing in our, um, in our institutions of learning is a training of the heart to desire things that we should desire. So we're training minds well, but even though we're accumulating this information, we're still not getting at some of our heart, at our hopes. Uh, and so we can teach people all about the Bible, but our culture in the meantime, through advertising and magazines and whatever else, is, is setting our hearts on other things. So we live in this kind of um, split. We think one thing, but we love another. And so what Peter is calling us to is to uh, bring those together, to learn to love and to desire that which is worth loving and desiring. Does that make sense? That's, a, that's, that's hard, though. I mean, think about what... I know that I love things that I shouldn't love. Um, and when you love things you shouldn't love, what do you do? You think, I'm an idiot, but I'm going to go after this. I know better than this, but... But like an immature child, because as he's talking about children and infants here, that's what we do. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Um, holiness, we tend to think of maybe in this, you know, I don't know, it's, it doesn't always sound like a good word. Uh, think of it as set apart. And this is the alien uh, exile language. Be set apart. Uh, as God is set apart. And what do we learn about God? We've seen, we've seen God in the flesh in Jesus. And so we come back to that center, love God and love neighbor. And this is what he's going to call them to. What does it mean to be holy? He's about to develop that in the next verses, but it's going to be about how they treat one another. And it's their treatment of one another that's going to make them look weird. So their norm, the cultural norm, uh, might be Caesar, Roman standards, uh, whatever the household codes might be, but that's not the Christian norm. Christians look to God. Be holy because He is holy. What are your actions based on? Your actions are based on who your God is. Uh, this is one of those verses I memorized uh, at some point, uh, and it's, it's a great one to kind of replay in your head. Be holy because I am holy. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Um, this is our third time to get God as father. So this language of judging and fear might make us think, okay, we need a balance between God as father and God as judge. Uh, but perhaps, and this is where Joel Green goes, um, he's saying, God's your father. And this is a God who judges impartially. He judges what is true. And so set your minds and hearts on what is true. If you think about how, as we're about to see here in the latter half of it, God is going to, to judge those uh, cultural standards that are broken. So you don't want to live according to those things. Live according to the way God judges, not according to these temporal things like status and power. This is what you're 
um, aligned with what you're looking to. Verse 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Oh man, this is so packed uh, with good stuff here. The language of redeemed or ransomed, this is slave language. You were redeemed from slavery. Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt here. He's saying you were redeemed. You were bought out of slavery. And what were you enslaved to? Don't fly past this. You were enslaved to an empty way of life. We tend to think of enslaved to something like judgment of sin, but, but for Peter, it's, there was a certain way of life that was emptiness. And you were redeemed from that. And this is picking up on where he's calling them to to maturity, to growth in Christ-likeness. There is a way of life that is empty and a way of life that is purposeful and meaningful. You were ransomed from this. Grow into the other. Uh, what a, what a, um, a powerful corrective for our view of sin. Sin is not that which we want to do if we could only get away with it. Sin is just emptiness. It's empty promises. It doesn't deliver. This ransoming is through the precious blood of Christ. Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. We get the sacrificial language seems to uh, be in effect here. As blood cleanses, and like Leviticus, uh, blood might even represent as the blood of animals are killed. Life is in the blood. This should be you who dies. It's the animal instead. And now we have something even more powerful than the death of animals. It is Christ. And he is the lamb. This also brings up Passover. As God redeems or God rescues Israel at Passover, so he's doing the same to the church, rescuing them from an empty way of life. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last time for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in him. This was going on before the creation of the world. In ancient times, older is better. You don't want a new religion. New religion is suspect. And so you've got Christians and people are saying, is this a new thing? Uh, it needs some roots. And what uh, Peter is saying is, this has roots that precede any others. This was gone on before even creation took shape. Uh, and you can have faith in it because of, as we already talked about earlier, verse 21, the resurrection and the glorification of Christ. Why do you set your faith and hope in Him? Because He has proved Himself worthy um, in those ways. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so here is the other piece of it. God works in you, but you also have your side of the bargain. You purify yourselves. Uh, you set your mind on certain things, as we saw earlier. This is, a two, uh, this is a kind of partnership and growth. So that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. So that language, love one another deeply. In verse 22, uh, Greek is philadelphion anupokriton. Uh, yeah, anupokriton. So Philadelphia, brotherly love unhypocritical. Have an unhypocritical brotherly love. That's such great language there. Because what we've got is who is our father? What is our house? And what do we do in this house? We recognize others as our brothers and sisters and we love them accordingly. Unhypocritically from the heart. Earlier you had these evil desires, these broken desires. Now what we are longing for is the kind of hearts that love one another unhypocritically. I mean, this is good. We have rede been redeemed from an empty way of life and have been given new birth 
uh, so that we might live as those who have unhypocritical brotherly love for one another. This is what we want to become, right? What's the goal for our lives? It's not so bad if you become a person who with great depth and magnitude has unhypocritical brotherly love for one another. That is a good human life. And that is far from being an empty way of life. We just have to learn to desire it or have to be given the grace to desire it. Verse 23, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So again, this is, this is ongoing. Uh, the current things that they're being rejected by are temporal. Look forward to what is imperishable uh, as they've been redeemed in an imperishable ways. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Again, there is a temporal and there is an eternal. He's beginning already to quote Isaiah here. This is from Isaiah 46, so 40, verse 6. Uh, he is speaking to those, Isaiah was speaking to those in exile. Here's that both and thing. This was good news to those in exile. God hears your problem. He's going to deal with it. And now it's good news to those who are in cultural exile. God knows what's going on. He's going to deal with it. Don't be worried and bothered by those temporal things. It's like grass that withers and flowers that fall. But the word of the Lord, what is that? That's not just scripture. Rather, if we get the end of verse 25, that was the word that was preached to you. This is the good news of the gospel. What Jesus has done, what's been preached about him, this is lasting. This is where you set your hope on. This is what you align your life to. So, closing comment here. In short, the Word of God, this good news of Jesus, is efficacious, he uses big words, in generating, cultivating, and sustaining new life. It gives us new life, it helps grow new life, and it helps sustain new life. What Jesus has done, as we saw in Hebrews, as we get in James, uh, is everything. We align our lives accordingly, we set our hopes accordingly, and we ask that our hearts learn to desire that as we grow away from an empty way of life and into a full and meaningful way of life. All right. Can I ask one yes, question? of course. So it's bugged me since the very first sentence. So when he said this, is he not referring to the Jew, Jew, Jews who've been converted to Christianity? Um, not necessarily. So uh, Christians could be diaspora. Well. I think so. I mean, they as they what you're getting here is they are kind of um, being brought into Israel's story. Certainly, I mean, this is the language I think throughout the New Testament or throughout these letters that you have now kind of taken step two in Israel's story. Yeah, I mean, any Gentile who says Jesus Christ is saying Jesus Messiah. Right. The same Messiah is to say I'm part of Israel's story. So I don't think it it means it's necessarily Jews. Yeah. Possibly, but not definitively. Anyone else? Okay. Uh, Chapter 2 next week.